It is um, a pleasure to introduce Kevin Thompson. We've, it's been a while since we spoke, and I'm sorry I didn't get a chance to talk to your brother before, <laughs> before I introduce you. But uh, I, I re- recall and remember fondly when you at last preached here, which was several years ago now. And so um, he, uh, Kevin is a good friend of the, uh, of the Scots from back in Rockford and is, I believe, an elder there at the church as well. And uh, he has, uh, we are blessed to have Kevin come here and share what God's laid on his heart this morning. So Kevin, if you would please come and, and share God's word with us. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Good morning. Your pastor's tall, just judging by this podium. You can turn your Bibles to Luke 15. I was a little conflicted about preaching here this morning, of all mornings, because um, I've been thinking about, you know, is this going to be the year I run the Ironman? And Jeremy called, I thought, all right, well, I guess this is the Lord telling me not this year. And then I thought it might be, it, it might take a little less preparation to prepare for a sermon than this race this year anyway. But thank you for, for having me. Uh, we are going to be in Luke 15, and it's a familiar passage. And when we get to a familiar passage, we have a temptation maybe to tune out a little bit. But I want to come at this from a different perspective. I want you to approach this text from a little different perspective. The perspective of my young, one of my younger sons, Tommy, who's not here with us this morning, unfortunately. My wife, Jill, again, not here with me this morning, um, does a really good job of keeping our children alive. Not something I'm good at. My wife is a better parent in every way, shape, and form imaginable except one. There's one area I excel in where my wife doesn't, and this is what my children tell me, assure me. Only dad can tell a story. When it's time for bedtime and they want a story, it's dad they come to. And for Tommy, for quite some time, it wasn't just a story, it was the story. We're not talking about fairy tales, Aesop's fables, or, or some uh, traditional legend, but it's a story that he and I crafted over a period of months, and it was the same story every single time. It involved a green garbage truck, and Tommy would drive the garbage truck all across the country, and eventually he'd pick up the family, and we'd drive in this green garbage truck, eventually winding up at Miller Stadium, of course. We would take in a game, but of course, during the course of the game, something horrible happened, and one of the players was injured, and well, the next logical step would be Tommy joining the team. And of course, the story would end with him hitting the final game-winning home run. But every night, it would be the same story, the same story, the same story, the same story. And each night he came to it with the same level of expectation and the same level of excitement. Dad, tell me the story again. So when we come into this passage, don't just tune out and say, all right, well, okay, I, I've heard this since, you know. If you're like me, we're, we're going to be talking about the last half of the chapter, the, the prodigal son. And if you're like me, I think of prodigal son, my mind goes back to a Sunday school room and a flannel board. 
Some of you kids don't know what a flannel board is. Be thankful. You know, it's that same, that same uh, flannel board, the, the, the sunny sky and the green grass. No matter what it was, Jonah and the whale, whatever, it took place at the same scene every single Bible story, right? My mind goes back to that scene when I think about the prodigal son, and I've heard it a thousand times. But the wonderful thing about the Word of God is that it's convicting. The wonderful thing about the Word of God is it's discerning. The wonderful thing about the Word of God is it is alive. And so as we approach this text, come with that perspective. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we do come to this familiar parable, open our eyes to what you would have us to see here. You have a message. And I pray I would get out of the way of that message. I pray your Word would do the work that only it can do here this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, before we get to our text, let's back up a little bit in the chapter, because it's been said that a text without a context is merely a pretext. And so this morning, we've already read verses 1 through 10. And I kind of want to walk through that a little bit to give us a good context coming into this larger parable. So verse number 1, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So already we have a context, and we have an audience. And we have two basic groups. We have the, uh, in verse 1, the tax collectors and the sinners over here. And you've got the Pharisees and the scribes over here. And you almost get the impression that this is the bad group, because that has the word sinners and tax collectors. And this is the good group. So let's talk about this, this, this bad group here, this first group, the sinners, the tax collectors. Nobody likes the tax collectors, do they? Nobody enjoys paying taxes, do they? I don't. Every time we fill out our taxes, I tell Jill, I want to punch my congressman. I mean, seriously, how much of my money do you want? My hard-earned cash. We don't like paying taxes. Well, for these guys, it was a little different, more than just an IRS agent. But these men were considered traitors to their country. Remember, at this time, Israel is under Roman occupation. They're paying taxes not just to a local official, but to the Roman government. Israel has a fierce independence streak, as they should, because this is a land that God himself had given them. We go all the way back to Genesis 12, and we see God had made a promise of a land. How dare other people come and take over God's land? So we're paying money to these godless pagans. But these tax collectors were fellow Jews working for the Romans. And they worked kind of on like a commission basis where they would take money and then some. And that would be their cut, their pay. And as we saw with, you may be familiar with the story of Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus was guilty of collecting far more than he should have. And this was not merely the exception to the rule. These tax collectors were viewed as scum. We don't like them. They're traitors. Traitors to our people, traitors to our country. And these sinners, the other group, just sinners. We don't really know much about them. Some commentators think they're, they're Gentiles. We don't know. The only thing we know about them is they're known for one thing, sin. They're characterized only by 
the negative connotation, sin. This is not the crowd you want to be with. But notice how they're described here. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Huh. They're drawing near to him. The underlying Greek here has the idea that it's not just they're coming here for the first time, but these are people who keep coming to Jesus to hear him. They're coming to him. Now, we see several times in the Gospels where Jesus turns around crowds, turns away crowds. You're just here for a free meal. You're here to see a show. You're here to see a miracle or a healing or something. These people aren't being turned away. They're coming, and they're coming to listen to Jesus. Despite their sin, despite their reputation, they keep coming to Jesus. They feel welcome to keep coming to Jesus. And they're there to listen. We see the other group, the Pharisees and the scribes. The Pharisees and the scribes, we, you know, thousands of years later, we biblically literate people know these are not great people. They tangle with Jesus quite a bit. But back in their time, back in their day, they were revered. They were respected. These Pharisees were looked up to. They were thought of as pure. They had developed over, uh, in between the uh, New and Old Testament, in between that, those couple hundred years, as Israel would change hands several times, as the Greek Empire would arise, and later the Roman Empire. Israel saw a lot of compromise, a lot of changes to their culture, to their way of life. And it was during that time where this sect called the Pharisees grew. And they were bold. They wouldn't give in to the culture. They wanted a pure lifestyle. Keeping to the laws of God despite what everyone else was doing. In fact, not only would they keep to the law of God, they would add provisions to the law of God to make sure, to safeguard the law of God. They were looked at as heroes of the faith. The scribes were ones who were not just merely copying the word of God, but they were entrusted with the transmission of God's word and they were thought of as scholars of God's words, interpreters of God's word. This is the crowd you wanted to be in. But as we see here, how does Scripture describe them? Look at what they're, they're grumbling. This man receives sinners and eats with them. This man, a derogatory phrase talking about Jesus. They've rejected the Christ already. The Christ these scribes should have known was coming and is here if they had read their Old Testament, as Jesus constantly would point them back to the Old Testament, back to the Word of God, have you not read? Or with the two travelers to Emmaus, he went back through Moses and all the prophets. They should have seen Jesus for who he was, but they've written him off. This man eats with sin. This man hangs out with the wrong crowd. So this is the audience that Jesus is speaking to. And to this audience, he says, so he told them this parable. And we, and we read through two of these parables. First, the, the parable of the lost sheep. 
So here we have a shepherd watching over a sheep. And if we know again through the New Testament, the relationship between the shepherd and sheep is, is, is pastoral in a, in a picture. It's somewhat of a close relationship. And one goes astray. So the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes looking for the one. It's precious to him. And when he finds it, he hoists it on his shoulders and he brings it home and rejoices. What was lost is now found. And he calls his friends and relatives and loved ones and says, this is wonderful. And Jesus reminds us that there is joy in heaven over the repentance of even just one sinner. So something precious is lost. It is sought for. It is found, and there is rejoicing. And the application is God rejoices over repentance. God loves repentance. Now, if you're in this crowd over here of sinners and tax collectors, the message is obvious. That's why they keep coming. They're welcome here because God wants to see repentance. And who needs repentance more than these guys? So he goes into a second parable. Parable of the lost coin. It describes a woman who loses one out of ten coins, perhaps. And some scholars are debating exactly what this is and how, exactly how much it's worth. But the idea is not the worth, uh, as in money, but as in preciousness. This was probably part of some sort of like a dowry situation, or even kind of like a, a band of ten rings, perhaps, or, or, or coins, perhaps something akin to like a wedding ring. She lost it. And it wasn't just the, the money that she's concerned about, but this is something precious to her. It's a symbol of love and affection and commitment and covenant. She wants this back. And so she scours the house, not leaving anything unturned to find this. And when she finds it, she calls everybody, and she's so happy. She found it. And again, we're told the application, Jesus says, is that the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. So we have a formula here. Something precious is lost. It is sought for. It is found. There's rejoicing. We love repentance. And it's in that context we come into the parable of the prodigal son. So let's read this together, shall we? We'll start in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough to bread? 
but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So we have a father with two sons. And if we back up in our context, Jesus is addressing a crowd with two different groups. So, one of the sons says to the father, Father, give me what I've got coming to, to me. Give me my, my inheritance. Now, typically speaking, when do you get an inheritance? It's when someone dies. Dad, drop dead. Give me what I want. What a jerk of a kid. My son Tony's back there. If Tony came to me and said, Dad, give me what I have coming. Oh, I'll give you what you've got coming, kid. Trust me. But it's not going to be money. But the dad does it. I don't get that part. The kid is a jerk. The kid's basically telling his dad to drop dead. Give me some cash. And dad does it. So dad hands him over the money. And just a few days later, the kid is off. Now, again, you're, you're listening to this from the Pharisees and the scribes' perspective. You're thinking, this kid is an absolute jerk. That's disrespect. That's rebellion. According to Old Testament commandments, this kid could be dead himself. How dare he? And then what does he do? He runs off. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he took on a, a, me, a journey into a far country. He's leaving the homeland. Now, again, we know much about the Old Testament. We understand that property is important. Property is inheritance. Property is who you are as a member of the Jewish community, as the nation of Israel. He's not only leaving his father's country, but he's leaving the country altogether into a far country. He's going off to the pagan land. He's going off with Gentiles. You don't do that. Not if you're a Jew. And what happens when he gets there? He squanders the money. You saw that coming, didn't you? Of course you did, because you've heard this story before. But he squanders it with reckless living. And then when he spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. You're almost kind of like, good. That's what you really had coming, jerk. So what does he do? He went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. Now he's aligning himself with a Gentile. He's not only living in the land of the Gentiles, but he's now associating in a, some sort of relationship 
And then not only is he contracted himself to this Gentile, but what's his job? He's feeding the pigs. Now you think, that's not a job I would want. But remember, this isn't just like lowly servant work. This young man is a Jew. He's working with pigs, an unclean animal. Not only has he rebelled against his father, wasted all of his money, associated himself with the Gentiles, but now he's ceremonially unclean. He can't be with his people anymore. He can't come and worship as he ought to. He's unclean. And there in the muck and mire of his job, he desires to be fed with even just the husks that the pigs are eating. But no one gave him anything. So he's hit rock bottom. And at that point, there he says, the Bible says, he came to himself and said, how many of my fathers... And he begins to think, okay... I'm going to go back home. Why? After all he's done, he has the gall, he has the audacity to think, even as a hired servant, to come back. No. If you're one of these Pharisees and scribes, you're thinking, what a jerk, what a horrible person. Maybe if you're on this other side and you're one of these scribes or one of these, ta- excuse me, the, one of the tax collectors or the sinners, you're thinking, wouldn't that be nice? It is interesting. As bad as this kid is, and, 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 and he knows what he's done. He, he came to himself and he realizes, first, I have sinned when he begins to rehearse this speech, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Notice his perspective. He didn't just say, Dad, please, please, please bring me back. I'm sorry. I know I've, done, I've been a jerk, whatever. He starts by saying, I've sinned against heaven. He recognizes his sin is first a sin before God. This is the mark of someone who is truly repentant. He recognizes that before I've harmed any human being, I have to get myself right with the Lord. Because I know it's eventually, it, 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 ultimately, it is his law that I have broken. It is him whom I have rebelled against. So he really is coming to himself. He's recognizing this. And then he begins to say, yes, and you, Dad, as well, I have sinned against. It's interesting, not only does he have the right priority, but he knows his father. And he knows his father well enough to think, I have a chance at coming back. I have some sort of shot. Because this this doesn't make sense on any other level. This doesn't make sense at all. Except this son knows his father. He knows his father's heart. He knows his father's love. The same father who should have beat him gave him money to begin with. He knew he could go back to the Father. And so he begins the journey back, and 
we see here that while he was yet afar off, he's seen by the Father, and the Father begins to, to run, which wasn't something that was thought stately or becoming of an older gentleman to start running, but he does, he runs, and what does he do? He embraces that the son begins his, his speech, but his dad embraces him. And we think, oh, what a tender moment. But back up. Where did this son come from? He came from the pig pen. This guy is unclean. But the dad comes and hugs him, embraces him. Almost kind of symbolic, he's taking away that sin. He's putting that sin upon himself. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. And instead of the son saying, let me, let me, let me work as a servant, let me, he doesn't even get the words out. And dad says, let me give you the best that I have. We're going to kill the fatted calf. We're going to put on shoes and your feet and a robe on your, on your back, the very best. There's rejoicing over a sinner that has come home. Something precious is lost. There's a search. There's repentance. There's rejoicing. If you're one of these sinners, one of these tax collectors, you're thinking, wow, that's the message I came to hear. No matter what you've done, no matter what your background, no matter what your reputation, the love of Jesus overcomes all of that and welcomes you come. Repent. There's rejoicing in heaven over even one sinner that repents. There's joy. Not just like a, ah, all right, I guess I have to. No, there's, there's, there's joy and there's love. No matter what you've done, where you've been, who you've been with, the gospel begs you to come. See the forgiveness, the grace, the mercy in Romans Chapter 5, we see where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Come and see, come and taste the goodness of the Lord. It's not a matter of, okay, well, once you've got your life shaped up, once you've got things straightened out, once you've turned over a new leaf, once you... Father just says, come. See my mercy and my grace is greater than any accomplishment that you can do. You don't come to Christ because you've changed your ways. But once you've come to Christ, you have the joy of changing your ways. But as you've already figured out, this isn't where the story ends, does it? This isn't the end of the parable. It would be a good message. We could just close here and you guys can get out early. And I'd be the most popular speaker ever, right? <laughs> but wait, there's more. 
Look at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive and was lost and is found. You almost forget there's another brother involved here, the older brother. So he's out in the fields and he's hearing the music. He says, what, what's going on? Hey, your brother's back. Come and see. What? That jerk is back? Now, it's interesting. He says later to his father, this kid is, you know, had this all this, you devoured your, your money with prostitutes and all that stuff. Apparently, they had some idea of what was going on out there, which is interesting when the father came and hugged him. There was some knowledge of what he's done. It wasn't just pure ignorance. He knew the sinful person he was. He knew the wretchedness he had experienced. But anyway, the son refuses to go in. So what happens? The father has to come out and entreat him, beg him, please come in, please come in. And he wouldn't. He couldn't get over the fact that I've done all this stuff. I've, look at, look at what it says here. I never disobeyed your command. Reminds me of the rich young ruler when Jesus said, oh, you want to go to heaven and get obey the commandments? Oh, I've kept the commandments since I've, since I've been young, right? I've done everything. I've kept all the commandments. I know what I'm doing. But you never did anything for me. If we go back to our pattern, something's precious, something's lost, and something is sought for. We look at this case and if we recall, the prodigal came to himself and he began the journey back home. He came home. Who is it that the father had to come and search for and come and say, hey, come back? come back. It was the other son, wasn't it? It was the older son. This is the person being sought after in this parable. It's the older son. Imagine being one of those Pharisees, one of those scribes. You're thinking this whole time, this parable are for those guys, the sinners, the tax collectors. Oh, they need to hear this. Okay. They need to hear about repentance and they need to hear about getting right with Jesus and all that stuff. We're just here because, you know, we're, we're looking good being here. But Jesus is pointing this parable to them. He's looking at them and saying, your next step is repentance. Jesus is calling. The Father's calling. 
you come back in your pride, in your arrogance, in your conceit, I'm telling you, repent. And when you do, they'll be rejoicing in heaven. So my question for you this morning is, what is it that we need to be repentant of? We rejoice in repentance. It was Martin Luther who said in his 95 Thesis, I believe it was the first one, that the entire Christian life is one of repentance. It's how we see the gospel in our lives every day. It's how we see the richness of God's mercy and forgiveness and love every day when we examine our own lives. And we see, God, what, where is the area of pride? Where is the area of sin? Where is the area that I'm deluding myself in? Because I want to see you overcome that. It's easy to point the finger at those people. It's easy to look outside and think, ah, oh, those people are gearing up for a big race out there and they're, they're all about the physical body. But I'm here in church, and I've got my Bible. It's the liberals. It's the homosexuals. It's the, and we can name whatever group it is that we're calling out today. And they're no doubt, they're, they're guilty. And I, I don't agree with those groups, okay? But the problem with this country, the problem with this church is me. What's wrong with America? Me. What's wrong with the church today? Me. I have to look at my life. I have to examine my heart. And I want to be like David, who said, Lord, search me and know me. I need my sin to be exposed. I need my black heart be opened up and see the sin that's there so that I can repent, so that I can see Jesus' mercy and grace all over again. And I can see what God has done for me. It's not about my performance. It's not about my accomplishments. It's not about what I do, my attitude, or anything else having to do with me. But I can see Christ as all the more glorious. I can see Christ as all the more loving and gracious. And that is what thrills my soul and keeps me going from day to day when I take my eyes off of myself, my pride and my arrogance. And that creeps in so easily, doesn't it? I don't even notice it most of the time, which is why I have to ask God, examine my heart. Now, Jeremy said before I go, I have to give you a homework assignment. As a teacher, that's a pretty easy thing to do. That's what I do naturally. So here's your homework assignment. Am I supposed to give it now? Is that how you're supposed to do it? Okay, if it's not, then we're just going to do it new. And, and not, anyway, so your homework assignment is simply this. Each day this week, begin your morning prayer. Begin your daily prayer with just that. Examine my heart. Lord, show me where I need to repent today. Expose the sin in my life so that I can see you more clearly and I can bask in your love all the more.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we close this, this message, I pray that you'd help us to examine our own lives, not to focus on others, but Lord, with laser beam focus, expose the sin in our lives and remind us and astound us with your grace and your mercy. So at the end of this day, we are rejoicing in you all the more. We pray for this in your name. Amen.